Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker, back in the host seat, and I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Michael. I'm like a little bit under the weather, but hanging in there. It's like February is never a good month for me, but I'm hanging in Am I allowed in there. to reveal to the audience <laughs> that you said just before the show that you might be under the weather or you might just be hungover from the weekend? Yeah. <laughs> it's like my aging body, just like the cold, the drinking, it just, it's over. It's done for me. <laughs> I'm happy for you in any case. You know, I like, I like to know the, the Novara team are out having fun. What are we talking about tonight? Shamima Begum. Um, in my opinion, she is the UK's problem. In the court's opinion, it's up to the Home Secretary to decide. Some nuance in the ruling today. We'll be talking about that. Also, banks are making extraordinary profits It's similar to what we're seeing in the energy industry, but a little bit more under the radar. It doesn't deserve to be. We're also going to show you a clip of Kemi Badenoch saying something interesting about gay marriage. Shamima Begum has lost her appeal against the government's decision to revoke her British citizenship. Lawyers for the 23-year-old who isn't allowed to enter the country and who remains in a Syrian refugee camp had lodged an appeal at the Special Immigration Appeals Commission. Her legal team argued that the government's decision was unlawful because Begum had been a victim of child trafficking when she was just 15 years old. But Mr Justice Jay, who oversaw the semi-secret tribunal, dismissed her appeal in full. Begum's lawyers, Daniel Ferner and Gareth Pearce, spoke to the media after the ruling. I think what, what really jumped out of the judgment is what the commission didn't say, what they didn't do is endorse what Sajid Javid said in September 2021. He said, you haven't seen what I saw. If you did know what I knew, you are sensible, responsible people. You would have made exactly the same decision. Of that, I have no doubt. In fact, this commission, which saw exactly the same material that Sajid Javid saw, didn't say anything like that at all. He described the case as finely balanced, and said that reasonable people might strongly and profoundly disagree with what, with the, the way in which Ms. Begum's case has been determined. So, I, do you want to say anything more about trafficking? I think repeatedly you'll see in the judgment the findings that the Commission finds a credible suspicion that Shamima Begum was trafficked, a credible suspicion that she was harboured by the traffickers until 2019. A credible suspicion that there were extraordinary failures within the UK in preventing her, failing to prevent her and her friends travelling. Reading the factual underpinning of what the Commission considers to have been made out on Miss Begum's behalf, you would feel that there would be no way that she could not have succeeded in her appeal. But you will equally see, repeated as a thread through the judgment, how the Commission invokes the Supreme Court's view that its role was limited and it cannot consider the merits of a case. It's limited to the most narrow grounds of administrative review. In his summary of the ruling, Mr Justice Jay said this, The Commission concluded that there was a credible suspicion that Ms. Begum had been trafficked to Syria. The motive to bringing her to Syria was sexual exploitation to which, as a child, she could not give a valid consent. 
The commission also concluded that there were arguable breaches of duty on the part of various state bodies in permitting Ms. Begum to leave the country as she did and eventually cross the border from Turkey into Syria. Despite finding that the claim of child sexual exploitation was plausible, the court ruled that then-Home Secretary Sajid Javid still had the power to revoke her citizenship on national security grounds. Mr. J goes on. If asked to evaluate all the circumstances of Ms. Begum's case, reasonable people with knowledge of all the relevant evidence will differ, in particular in relation to the issue of the extent to which her travel to Syria was voluntary and the weight to be given to that factor in the context of all others. Likewise, reasonable people will differ as to the threat she posed in February 2019 to the national security of the United Kingdom and as to how that threat should be balanced against all countervailing considerations. However, under our constitutional settlement, these sensitive issues are for the Secretary of State to evaluate and not for the Commission. So the court agreed that Begum may have been trafficked and exploited and also that Javid's decision wasn't clear cut. That's counter to what he suggested back in 2019, as you saw the lawyers say there. But they also said it was a decision that Sajid Javid did have the right to make and it was not the court's remit to overturn that decision. So where next for Begum? Here's Daniel Ferner again. In terms of the legal fight, that's, that's nowhere near over. We're not going to go into details about exactly what that means at this stage. I think what, what else this judgment calls out for, though, is some, some, some courage and some leadership from the Home Secretary to look at this case afresh in light of the clear and compelling factual findings that this court has made. It may seem odd that the UK is able to just revoke someone's citizenship even if they were born and raised here. And not every state has that right. In the United States, for example, the Constitution holds that citizenship is a birthright of anyone born there, and that cannot be taken away. But in the UK, there are three circumstances in which the government can deprive someone of their status as a British citizen. They are the following. So one, if it is for the public good and would not make them stateless. Two, if the person obtained citizenship through fraud, or free if their actions could harm UK interests and they could claim citizenship elsewhere. Now, it's the first and third of those conditions which the government argued applied to Begum. In 2019, Sajid Javid judged that she presented a risk to national security, and he said that because she had Bangladeshi heritage and was therefore entitled to citizenship in Bangladesh, stripping her of her British citizenship wouldn't render her stateless. Bangladesh, however, said, quote, there was no question of her being allowed into the country. At the time Begum lost her citizenship, she was just 19 years old and had just given birth to a child in a refugee camp. This is the moment she received the news. Shamima, hello. Take a seat. Until our conversation this morning, Shamima Begum had assumed she was coming back to Britain. Have you heard anything new about your case? No. I only get um, information about my case every time a journalist comes to me. What was the last information that you heard? That not everyone wants me to come back and it might take a bit of time for me to come back. Well, um, I've got a letter mm. that was sent to your family oh. yesterday. Okay. They got this in the post. Okay. But I'd come here with a copy of the letter sent to her parents yesterday, stripping her of British citizenship. <coughs> Please find enclosed papers that relate to a, a decision taken by the Home Secretary to deprive your daughter Shamim Begum of her British citizenship. 
In light of the circumstances of your daughter, the notice of the Home Secretary's decision has been served on file today, 19th February, and the order removing her citizenship has subsequently been made. Okay, then. What do you think? I don't know what to say. I'm not that shocked, but I'm a bit shocked. So I don't know why my case is any different to other people. Or is it just because I was on the news four years ago? It's kind of heartbreaking to read. I, I thought it would, my family made it sound like it would be a lot easier for me to come back to the UK when I was speaking to them in Barros, but it's kind of, it's kind of hard to swallow. I feel like it's a bit unjust on me and my son. Yeah. But, the, but you've done this to your son. I mean, th this is the consequence of your actions. Uh, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. That was incredibly uncomfortable to watch. Of course, whatever you think of Begum, I don't think she's particularly sympathetic as a character. That seemed gratuitous at best. And it's also worth noting that the child in that video died soon after. It was the third child that Begum had lost. Of course, neither journalists nor their audiences were particularly inclined to offer Begum much sympathy, even after it emerged last year that a Canadian spy had been involved in smuggling her into Syria. Now, in part, that lack of sympathy was down to an interview she gave to BBC News back in 2019. This was just days before her citizenship was revoked. So here's your opportunity then to apologise to some of the people who were murdered by the group that you joined. Some of the British men, some of the women, some of the kids from Manchester who were killed in the Manchester arena. You must have heard about that attack. What did you think about that? I was shocked, but... What? I just couldn't... I didn't know about the kids, actually, but... I do feel that it's wrong that people, like innocent people did get killed. It's like, it's one thing to kill a soldier that is fighting you, you know, it's self-defense, but to kill people like women and children, just like people, you know, like the women and children in Barros that are being killed right now, unjustly by the bombings. So it's, it's a two-way thing, really, because women and children are being killed back in the Islamic State right now. And it's kind of retaliation, like, the, their justification was that it was retaliation, so I thought, okay, that is a, f a fair justification. I still haven't heard you apologise to anybody. Okay, yeah, I am sorry for all the families that have lost them, like husbands and sons and brothers, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry for all the men that have lost their women and children because of their tax back in the UK and other countries. It wasn't fair on them. They weren't fighting anyone. They weren't. They weren't causing any harm. But neither wasn't. Neither was I, and neither 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 are the women who are being killed right now back in Barros. So two years later, Begum struck a different note. This is an interview she gave to the BBC in 2021. Do you regret joining ISIS? Of course, I will re regret it for the rest of my life. Whether you can see it on my face or not, it it kills me inside. I lose sleep over it. And why is it you regret joining ISIS? Because ISIS ruined people's lives. ISIS ruined my life, my family's life, you know, and I will have to live with that. I mean, when you think back to being 
part of a group that did commit genocide, that did murder, that did carry out attacks around the world. How does that feel? It's, it makes me sick to my stomach, really. It makes me, it makes me hate myself. Do you think if ISIS hadn't have fallen, that you, I mean, would you still regret your choice? Of course, yeah. Of course, yeah. Like if I had left and then out like spontaneously, ISIS would have like regained all their territory again and regained all their power. I still would have been like, thank God I'm not there in that hellhole. Thank God I got out. Because, I mean, some people will think that you've only changed your opinion now because you're no longer with ISIS, because you can't be in a caliphate. What do you say to that? I have had these opinions for a very long time, but only now I feel comfortable to express my real opinion. Dahlia, you know, it's difficult to express like an incredibly strong opinion here. There's no goodies and baddies, really. I mean, I suppose my opinion is that whatever you think of Begum, whether she was trafficked, whether she went there by her own free will, um, you know, whatever threat she might pose in the UK or whatever she did when she was in Syria, she's our problem. So that should be dealt with here, right? So if she is still a threat to Britain, I would want to see her locked up. If Depending on what she did in Syria, I'd want to see her locked up. But it feels like that should be a problem for the British state and they shouldn't just be able to say, oh, well, this is someone else's problem now. I mean, what's your interpretation of this? There's a well-known legal maxim that says hard cases make bad law. And essentially what is meant by that is that cases that evoke like really strong emotional responses from the public are a poor basis on which to make laws that are then, that then can be applied generally because they are part of legal precedents. This becomes a particular problem as well when you have a case like this, which is highly mediatized and mediatized in a way that is unquestionably irresponsible. Like that clip that we just saw of her reading that letter out in front of a journalist and in front of cameras was completely irresponsible and completely shock jock journalism. It was, it was bringing down like this incredibly serious, sensitive issue to like the standard of like the Jeremy Kyle show. Like this, it was, it was outrageous. And that was the complete tenor of the media reporting, deeply irresponsible. And so within that context of intense public emotion, highly high mediatization, irresponsible coverage. The idea that we have now enshrined this legal precedent is incredibly worrying. This is where we are in trouble because that legal precedent that has been generated from this decision is now has now rendered entire swathes of the population vulnerable. And we have in the sense that there is now a second class citizenship. Obviously, you know, what she did is something that we would not consider ever doing. But the point is, is that it has now endowed the Home Secretary with the power to revoke someone's citizenship, even if it will very likely make them stateless. And that is where this is a very different move to what has historically been the case. As you've outlined, we don't have birthright citizenship in this country. There are contexts where in which British citizenship can be evoked. This didn't invent that context, but it's it's expanded the remit under which the Home Secretary can, without you know, the intervention of the courts, take a decision to strip someone of their citizenship, even if it makes them stateless. 
And stateless, to be made stateless is essentially to be denied possible access to all other human rights, education, welfare, housing. This is an incredibly serious. And for me, the fact that this legal precedent has been made in what we can consider to be a hard and extreme case that has been very irresponsibly framed is going to have consequences on all of us because now it essentially means that anyone who theoretically has access to second citizenship, which of course in this country means all black and brown people, all Jewish people as well, because Jewish people technically can apply for Israeli citizenship, that all those people now have a kind of citizenship that is different to white British people. And that, to me, is an incredibly concerning consequence, especially in the emotive and sort of, I would say, unreflective way in which that precedent has been made. So, and 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 also it is very much the strategy of a government that is trying to chip away at citizenship rights, at civil rights, to use a case like this where the central character is not necessarily a sympathetic character. Although, you know, I do think that anyone that's an expert in grooming and abuse will wasn't really surprised by the way that she has respond that she has behaved in interviews, that kind of dead behind the eyes look that is quite chilling to watch. But it's very, con- it, like governments always use unsympathetic characters like this in order to chip away at civil rights. And I think that historically, we will look back on this moment as a worrying step in terms of a kind of downward spiral um, of civil rights, because despite what the government has tried to do here and what the media has tried to do here, this isn't actually just about this one woman. This is about a broader policy and legal precedent that has really significant consequences for many British citizens who have dual heritage um, in their background. And the government are already trying to politicise this case. I saw today the Conservative CCHQ Twitter account. So basically, you know, they're... The organisation of the Conservative Party were tweeting out a video of Keir Starmer back in 2019, so when he was a shadow Secretary of State, not when he was party leader, sort of saying that the stripping of her citizenship was worrying, you know, for some of the reasons that Dali was saying there, or from a legal perspective, saying this is this is concerning and, and worrying. And the Tories have now clipped that out and they're putting it out, you know, on social media saying, Keir Starmer wanted to let Shamima Bay go and back into the country, as if that means he supports her, not as if... At the time, he was a little bit more principled when it came to, to human rights than perhaps he, he is now that he has the leadership of the party. I mean, I think one thing that could be going on here is they might be trying to store up problems for the next government. I was listening to a very interesting interview today on the BBC with, I think, someone who was sort of the ombudsman for, for issues such as this. And he was suggesting that basically in these camps, so in these refugee camps, where you have these people who were, especially women and children, who were involved in ISIS and are now in sort of this purgatory, essentially, saying that lots of other countries are now starting to take their citizens back. So many European countries are starting to already repatriate their citizens. I think the Americans and the Canadians have repatriated a few. And it's Britain has become a bit of an outlier in sort of just letting the British citizens languish there or trying to strip them of British citizenship as they've done with Shamima Begum. What he was saying is that essentially it's going to come to a point where instead of saying this is an international problem where you've got all of these people in legal limbo, it will be kind of like a British problem because all the other countries will have already repatriated their citizens and it will just be British people there. And at that point, it becomes very politically awkward for the government in terms of you know, diplomatic 
relations. It looks very bad, a kind of Guantanamo that we've got in in the Middle East. So then he was suggesting the government might have to sort of say, make the political decision to to bring them back. And I assume the Tories are you won't be particularly concerned that that will probably be a decision that a Labour government have to make so that then they can attack from the opposition. We tried to keep Shamima Begum out of the country and you guys have let her back in. Because I think it's clear to everyone that the current situation is not in any way sustainable. Let's go to our next story. We've heard a lot lately about how the energy companies are raking in billions as a consequence of the war on Ukraine. Less has been said, though, about the banks. And they are well and truly rolling in it as well. Last Friday, NatWest posted their highest pre-tax profits since 2007. Their CEO also received a huge pay package with the cap on bankers' bonuses now lifted. She took home more than £5 million. Also, having a good few months are HSBC. The bank has seen its quarterly profits rise to £4.3 billion, double that which they earned the previous year in that same period. Lloyds have also doubled their quarterly profits, which stood at £1.8 billion for the last three months of last year. All in all, the big banks are expected to post combined profits of almost £40 billion for 2022. So why, when the rest of us are struggling, are the banks doing oh so well? Well, it all comes down to interest rates. This is from a Guardian piece by the economist Fran Boat from Positive Money. So she writes, these are the highest profits since the 2008 crash and are coming straight from households and small businesses in the form of higher mortgage payments and increased rates on loans. Banks are also set to receive £150 billion in the next six years from the Bank of England, paying interest on the risk-free reserves banks hold with the central bank, an average of £25 billion a year, essentially just for sitting on cash. So to break that down a little further, higher interest rates, so the Bank of England raising interest rates, that means bigger profits for bankers, for private banks, first, because that increases the amount that the public pay banks for mortgages, and second, they increase the amount small businesses pay them for loans. So you're a bank, if interest rates go from 1% to 3% and you're getting higher payments from mortgage holders, you're getting higher payments from small businesses who've taken out loans. That means you're raking in more money. There's a third reason though, which is mentioned in that piece I just read to you, which is that bankers also make a profit when interest rates rise because it means the savings they hold at the Bank of England earn more interest. So they're putting money in the Bank of England and they get loads of earnings back from that simply because it's sitting there. The windfall is simply from dumping money at the central bank. According to Fran Boat, that makes a combined £25 billion a year. That's just from that money sitting in the central bank for all of the banks combined. In response, campaigners are proposing a windfall tax on the bank. So Fran Boat writes this, just like oil and gas companies, banks are cashing in on the cost of living crisis and should be subject to the same taxes on their unearned windfalls. The former Bank of England Deputy Governor, Governor Sir Charlie Bean, has supported the plan, suggesting that it could raise tens of billions of pounds if the government increased the existing surcharge on bank profits from 3% to 35% in line with the energy profits levy this would raise £67 billion over the next five years. To find out more about the proposals, I asked Simon Yule from Positive Money to explain exactly how they'd work. So at the moment, we already have what is called the bank surcharge tax, which is essentially an additional levy put onto banks, kind of recognising that they you know, are well-placed to make excess profits. We've had that for a number of years, but um, recently the Chancellor decided we actually need to cut that from 8% to 3%. So 
you remember at the budget, there was um, the energy profits levy, which saw um, a special levy on energy companies up to 35%. At the same time, the special levy on banks was actually um, decreased from 8% to 3%. So what you could quite simply do is just raise that, you know, reverse those cuts. And, you know, this isn't a utopian left-wing idea. This is something that even was done in the early 1980s under Margaret Thatcher. We had um, an economy in recession. We had oil companies making money out of the North Sea and banks profiting from higher interest rates. So even Thatcher back then introduced a windfall tax on the banks, kind of recognising that you know, these profits don't come from any increases in efficiency or productivity or better customer service, but they're simply unearned profits um, that are coming from higher interest rates. The banks haven't done anything to earn them. It's just a side effect of monetary policy. One of the things, I mean, the, these profits have made me think about that I hadn't really thought about before is the relationship between yeah, interest rates and bank profits. And it made me wonder, do we see a dynamic whereby you've got private banks who are in the city of London lobbying the Bank of England to say, please, can you guys raise interest rates or keep them high because that means we can rake in extraordinary profits. Is that something that happens? There is definitely a relationship. I think there's been studies actually in the US showing that uh, central bankers who had connections to the private finance industry were more likely to vote for higher interest rates because essentially higher interest rates are a way in which the banks make money. It is increasing the cost of money and as the people who provide um, money to the economy, they're well placed to benefit from it. So Financial capital does very well out of higher interest rates. So they get these unearned windfalls. But, you know, the rest of the economy, whether that's like industry or workers, they tend to do less well from higher interest rates. So historically, there has been, you know, the way in which um, UK monetary and financial policy has been conducted has been done in a way to you know, safeguard um, the profits of the city of London at really the expense of other industries and of workers. So yeah, it's there's definitely, a, you know, as um, we've in Positive Money's work looked into, there's definitely a, a big finance lobby which pushes for a lot of these policies which benefit them. And yeah, you can say that maybe the finance industry is probably the biggest lobbying interest in the UK. That was Simon, you were speaking to me earlier. I thought that point about, you know, the finance industry being the biggest lobbying interest in the UK is super interesting. And I think, you know, looking into this story, I mean, obviously, one of the reasons I think they get away with it is because it's all quite complicated. You know, the way they rake in loads of money is through changes to interest rates, through changes to regulation here or there, the kind of stuff that isn't particularly comprehensible to you or I, or, or, or to most people for that matter. With the oil companies and the gas companies, you know, not, not that I have any sympathy for them, but it's a little bit more understandable, which is probably why the windfall tax was inevitably introduced, because people get that oil goes up in value gas goes up in value when you have a war and there's some sort of shortage, we all recognize that we're paying more for the oil and gas that we personally use. And therefore, it's, it's very obvious what's going on. Prices have gone up. They're making extraordinary profits. We should tax those profits. I think the relationship between interest rates and bankers' profits is much more complicated. I mean, it's not, it's not that complicated. As I, I tried to lay it out as simply as I could. If interest rates go up, then banks earn more from the mortgages they've lent out and from the loans they've lent out. They're not going to give you um, the same increase in interest on your savings. So that means they make a profit. And then there's all this money which is stuck in the Bank of England. And to be honest, that part of it, I didn't know about. Right? I'm a fairly politically educated person. So you can see how they get away with murder. They're getting £25 billion a year just from having money sitting in the Bank of England and no one's talking about it. Right? 25 billion can pay for quite a lot in this society. I reckon we could solve the housing crisis if we put 25 billion pound a year towards building council homes, right? That would be a good thing to do. But 
No, the bankers, they get away with it. And we've just, you know, taken away the cap on their bonuses. So they're not just going to get away with it. They're going to go home very, very happy this week as all of those extraordinary record profits are announced. Let's go straight to our next story. Kate Forbes' public opposition to gay marriage has likely blown up her SNP leadership bid. It's also generated an avalanche of discourse about the role of religion in politics. Kemi Badenoch is the latest to get involved. We should be able to allow those people who do have religious views. I'm not, I'm not a particularly religious person. I would say I'm not religious at all. But I understand it because you know, I didn't grow up in this country. I grew up in a very religious country. So I understand what it means to people and, and how it can impact the way that they live their lives. And to stop people from saying what they really feel, uh, I think is, is overly draconian. Uh, and I, um, I actually admire her for not being dishonest. It'd be very easy for her to tell lies just so that she could win that election. And she's not doing that. And I think that that's something that people need to take into account. I do think that those people who are withdrawing support from her, well, I would ask, why did you support her in the first place? Because I don't think that what she's saying is new. And, and it, I think it shows a level of unseriousness of many of the people who engage in political uh, activity and commentary where they're not, they don't take things seriously in terms of why am I supporting this person? And they will, they will support someone because of their gender or their race rather than because the person's views actually chime with theirs. And we need to think about what people actually believe and the political principles that they're operating from rather than anything superficial. And that's why um, the last 24 hours have panned out the way that they have. Equally, there will be lots of people in this country who would like to hear the Minister for Equalities condemn the sorts of views that Kate Forbes has put forward today. Would you do that? Um, no. I will say that I support, I personally support same-sex marriage. I think it's disappointing if people don't. I think always it's disappointing when people don't agree with me. But I would not want people to condemn me for having personal views. Disagree with the views, debate the views. But if you are asking me to condemn someone for their religious views, then you do not understand what the Minister of Equality's role is. I am the guardian of the Equality Act. Freedom of religion is one of the protected characteristics. To ask me to criticize someone for their religious beliefs when I'm supposed to be safeguarding it shows that those people don't understand equality. What they want is to use the Equality Act as a sword to fight their own personal battles rather than as a shield to prevent others from discrimination. It seemed a bit of a cheap shot, this people shouldn't support people just because of their gender or race. Now, I haven't seen much evidence that people supported originally Kate Forbes because of her, I presume she's talking about her gender. Her other candidates were another woman and then a Muslim man. So if you were doing this sort of cheap identity politics that Kemi Badenoch seems to be accusing SNP politicians of doing, it's not obvious that you'd go for Kate Forbes. The other point she made, I didn't think were entirely unreasonable though, Dahlia. She's sort of saying, at least she told the truth. She could have lied. And I thought it was also reasonable to say, well, what did the people supporting her expect? They knew that she was a fundamentalist Christian. I suppose they didn't know that she, you know, would have used her religion as a basis to vote against gay marriage. What do you think of that in general? What did you think of Kemi Badenoch's intervention? Well, I think she does what she was doing what she does best, which is being incredibly uh, cynical. She's trying to frame this issue as a kind of freedom of thought, freedom of speech question. That's not what this is. This is about, this isn't about your personal religious beliefs. You know, Kate Forbes is not just some random woman on the street. She's someone who is running for elected office. And this is about her being asked a question 
about what are you going to do with the political power that you may hold if you win this election? Are you going to use it to roll back on hard-won civil rights? Asking that question to me is completely legitimate for someone who's who's running for for election because and it is important to ask that question because someone can very much hold a personal religious belief but not govern or make a commitment that they're not going to govern in light of those personal religious beliefs especially when we're talking about rolling back on the civil rights and rolling back on the freedoms of other people Kate Forbes has just said that she's not going to govern in that way that she would govern in light of those personal religious beliefs, which is out of step now with a lot of Scottish society. So the fact that, you know, she's said that, and I agree, you know, it's good that she's honest. She absolutely should be honest. It's very important that we, that people know what's on the table. But the fact that people are reacting with, to that by criticizing it, dis- publicly disagreeing with it, and saying they're not going to vote for her, that to me seems like democracy in action. I don't see how this is a violation of a of freedom of thought and freedom of speech. But And even if it was a freedom of speech issue, which again, this is someone who's running for elected office, this is not just some random person on the street talking about their opinions, even if it was that kind of issue, which it isn't, Kemi Badnock is like the last person who has authority to claim to be a defender of freedom of speech and freedom of thought. This is someone who has used her tenure as equalities minister to essentially try to dictate what school teachers should and not be should and should not be teaching in their classrooms to stop teachers from using what she calls racialized language like white privilege to essentially get involved she's made it her mission to get involved in like the research agendas of academics you know all i hear from her is going on and on about how the government opposes critical race theory when was the last time you heard a government coming out and and declaring a position against a academic theoretical framework that isn't even that common in British in the British universities so she has actually been an outlier in her overreach of getting involved in the freedom of thought and freedom of expression of educators in this country so she is the last person to be claiming to be talking about not condemning people for the personal views that they hold that's all she's done as a qualities minister so really this isn't someone who is invested in the ability of people to freely express their thoughts and opinions this is someone who is invested in people with reactionary views being able to spread those views and hold positions of political power crucially without backlash or challenge what she wants is the absence of criticism accountability or being publicly challenged. That seems to me what she means when she says, you're wrong to condemn Kate Forbes for this, for, for having these opinions. What does she mean by condemn? Publicly disagreeing? Publicly criticizing? Saying you're not going to vote for her? Why is that the freedom of expression and freedom of, of thought doesn't come with the app, doesn't come with the absence of condemnation or the absence of disagreement? Reaction is part of the freedom to speak. So this is like a deliberate muddying of the waters by Kemi Badnook. What she really wants here is for reactionary right-wing views to become popularized in the public sphere and to be shielded from criticism or from challenging. Because if you do that, then you'll just be called, you know, the woke mob, woke tofu, 
eating wokarati or whatever, whatever she's, you know, isn't I think that was Suella Braverman, but that's essentially what this is about, rather than any kind of sincerely held commitment to to freedom of thought. I think that clip taken in isolation, I think what she said, you know, came across as being somewhat reasonable. I think it's when you look at it in the context of what else has occurred over the past few months that it seems so completely disingenuous. I mean, you've talked about, you know, Tory policies when it comes to education and what teachers can and cannot teach. I mean, you can also look at a similar situation in a different party. Well, actually, I don't even think it is a particularly similar situation, but let's let's lay this out. So Kate Forbes, essentially, she wants to stand to be leader of the SNP and First Minister. She's had some, she's, she's been clear that she has some views, which she would let influence her policymaking because she said she would have voted against gay marriage that many people find objectionable. And as a result, what's going to happen? They're not going to vote for her. So she's probably going to lose. That's democracy in action. She, she's had the freedom to express whatever she wanted to express. And then people can or, or cannot vote for her. And they probably won't. That's, there's n- nothing to worry about there whatsoever. Now let's look at a different political party. And you had the case of an MP stand up in parliament and call Israel apartheid, which you have you know, all the leading human rights organizations agreed with and saying that the Israeli government was fascist and there are some fascists within the Israeli government, right? Now, if someone wanted to stand up and say, well, look, I just completely disagree with that and her party members and her electorate in that constituency can vote her out if they disagree, that would be fine. That would be democracy in action. What actually happened was you had a party leader say, no, that opinion you have expressed is outside of the realms of acceptability and you have to apologize or lose the whip, right? So that, that's a genuine uh, sort of limit to freedom of speech because you're saying, we're not going to leave this up to the voters. We're not going to leave this up to the electorate. You have to change your views and say something else or you will be disciplined. Now that to me is worrying. But you didn't hear Kemi Badenoch stand up and say then that this is, well, this is a legitimate opinion and we're, we're stopping people voice their legitimate opinions. Now to me, that's a much more legitimate opinion. In fact, it's a true opinion that Israel is an apartheid state, which has some fascists in government. That's demonstrably true, right? I don't think it is demonstrably true that gay marriage is wrong. I mean, obviously, I happen to be in favor of gay marriage, right? But you've got someone who says a demonstrably true thing in parliament, their party leader says, unless you deny the truth, you're going to be ejected from this party. Silence from the media, silence from Tory politicians, silence from anyone with any power whatsoever. Don't mind that at all. Nothing wrong, no, no imposition on free speech there. This is not an issue of freedom of belief. And then you have someone who says they're against gay marriage and so some people don't vote for them. And now suddenly we have this big concern about whether or not people who have different beliefs are able to engage in politics. Seems, seems disingenuous to me, to say the least, Dahlia. Any final thoughts on this, on this story? Yeah, I'm just sick of the like obfuscation. Like You're exactly right. In that, like, if you took that kind of clip in isolation, if that was the only clip you'd ever seen of Kemi Bednock talking, you'd be like, that seems, you know, fair enough. It seems fairly unobjectionable. But when you're talking about it, not just in the context of what Kemi Badnock herself has done and the positions that she's held and the way that she's used her position as equalities minister, as a front bench member of parliament in order to stigmatize and stifle particular veins of academic thinking, which are really none of her business, but also in the context of we're talking about an election. You know, we're talking about people putting forward their views, not just for the sake of it, but in the context of I might get, I'm vying to get a position of political power. It is completely legitimate. 
for people to scrutinize what they think you're going to do with that power and act accordingly. You know, I, I just, it's such a, it's such a kind of sinister way to essentially create this idea that right-wing people, people with reactionary views, people who want to curb the rights of gay people, of trans people, of black people, of brown people, of migrants, are somehow in some kind of persecuted minority where they're not allowed to express their opinions and they get cancelled for, for expressing, you know, common sense opinions. It's, it's, it's a fake persecution complex. And I don't understand how we've gotten to the position where the entire, you know, rhetorical framework of our government in the midst of a cost of living crisis seems to be around the central myth that right wing people are being persecuted. It's just not true. Let's go to our final story. The local elections this May are the first time that photographic ID will be required to vote. The new rules apply only to local elections in England because the Welsh and Scottish governments didn't follow suit. But when it comes to general elections, voters across the whole of the UK will be required to show photo ID. In Northern Ireland, they've been required since 2003. Now, May isn't very far away, and that's caused concerns that a large number of people in England are going to be disenfranchised by the new rules. That's because there are estimated to be 2 million people with the right to vote, but who don't have photo ID. These 2 million people are eligible to apply for a free voter authority certificate from the government, but it's been revealed that only 21,000 have so far signed up. That's just 1% of the people who might need it. Lee Rowley is a Tory minister for local elections and he disputes the significance of those figures. I need to take on this notion that there are two million people who need a uh, voter ID. That is not correct. It is absolutely not correct. And I hope honourable members will stop reiterating it. Of those two million people, which is an estimate, a number of those will not have elections in, a large number of those will not have elections in their area this year. Secondly, of that group, a number will choose not to vote, much as we would like them to do so. We'll have chosen never to have voted and we would encourage them to do so. But ultimately, that is what the purpose of a democracy is. People have a right both to vote and not to vote, and we are seeking to encourage them to do so. We're seeking to guarantee that integrity. And then ultimately, there may have been a choice for people to change to postal votes, or like, we are continuing to work to try and encourage take-up where it is necessary, but it is fundamentally incorrect for honourable members in this House to suggest that there is some form of target which is being missed. But there isn't a target being missed because it wasn't a target in the first place. We don't care if these two million people have voter ID or not. You know, it wasn't a target. We, we don't care. These people probably weren't going to vote anyway. I mean, maybe they weren't, but how do you make sure that they're the ones who aren't applying, right? And how do we know that there aren't going to be people in May who go to try and vote in the council elections and they get turned away? Now, one, obviously, they're not going to get time. They're not going to have time, right, to, to go and apply for that if they, if they go in May and hadn't heard that they would need this new ID. I think the bigger problem is you're going to get a lot of people go there. They don't have their ID and they don't bother going back, right? It doesn't seem to me a particularly healthy way to have a politician talking about elections. So back to that missing two million, the Guardian has dug a little deeper into those figures. And they report this. Just 2.4% of the 21,000 applications were from voters aged 75 or older, 505 in total, despite this demographic being among the least likely to possess a passport or driving license, although several older people's travel cards will also be accepted. Only 1,237 people aged under 25 had applied. 
younger people are also less likely to have photo ID that can be used to vote, especially as the government had decided that student cards and young people's travel passes are not valid. The Tories argue that the new rules will protect democracy. They say it's to stop voter fraud through impersonation. That's despite there being almost no known cases of voter fraud in the UK. Let's use the general election year of 2019 as an example. According to the Electoral Commission, there were 595 cases of alleged electoral fraud. And only a quarter of those had anything to do with voting. Now, most of them actually involve candidates breaching campaigning rules. So in 2019, only one person was convicted of voter impersonation and only one was issued with a caution. So it's not much of a case for completely changing the law. This was Angela Rayner's response to those figures. The Tories' voter ID plan is unworkable, unnecessary and set to lock millions out of voting. They're spending your money on disenfranchising you. Darling, this is pretty worrying, isn't it? Like, it, it does seem like gerrymandering. I mean, especially, you know, there are certain details, for example, like older people's travel passes are going to be valid, but younger people's travel passes aren't valid. Now, that just seems very clear, like the Tories trying to make it easier for older people to vote than younger people to vote. And yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like they're going to get away with it. The Tories never really respected us, but their respect has gone down so much that they're not even trying to hide, like, the shithousery that is going on. And, you know, I mean, the way that you know that this is about disenfranchisement of, like, particular people, obviously, the double standards about travel ID, whether or not travel documents can be considered ID, but also the fact that there's been absolutely no public communications campaign or anything about this shift taking place. You know, I'm pretty locked into politics. You know, this is, it's like my job. It's what I do. I haven't personally seen any kind of public communications or any, and you know, maybe you could argue that May is too far away from that for that to happen, but I haven't seen any kind of campaigning or anything to say, you know, this is what you need in order to vote. This is how you get it. This is the There's been no, in the same way that when your taxes, when filling in your taxes comes around, you see adverts on bus stops, you see, you get emails, you get get communication from the government giving you information of what you need in order to participate in this process. We've seen none of that for voter ID. And so this is how you know that really, and if you needed any more evidence, that this is about making sure that the groups of people that are least likely to vote for the Conservative Party are not able to vote for the Conservative Party. And the broader context here, I think, is one in which the Conservatives really don't feel like they can actually win elections on kind of honest and transparent terms. You know, it's coming in the same context as the redrawing of electoral boundaries. That process has already come under scrutiny because in um, December 2020, no, I think it, not December, I think just 2020 in general, they pushed through a law that essentially revoked the ability of Parliament to essentially sign off on a bill redrawing constituency boundaries. And they will be drawing in those new boundaries soon. And there are obviously predictions and forecasting that the way that those boundaries will be redrawn will benefit the Conservatives. And so there's this broader context where essentially the Conservatives are aware that they are very much fledgling in terms of what the nation thinks of them, that they've lost the nation to an extent. And their way of dealing with that dissent is not to actually deal with the core issues that people are materially angry about, but to just kind of 
manage the way in which that dissent can be expressed. And we see it with these voter ID laws. We see it with the gerrymandering. We see it with things like the public order bill, with the minimum service level bills, with all of these things that are essentially ways of dealing with dissent, not by addressing core issues, but by strangling our freedom to express dissent in ways that can actually get change, whether it's how we vote, whether it's using strike action or whether it's protesting. And that is essentially the gasp, you know, the last gasp of a dying party. The question is, what are they going to do to our democracy as they sort of die as an electoral force, at least in the next election, not permanently, obviously? Essentially, they're going to drag our democracy down with them. And that's the real concerning thing here. You know, sovereignty of parliament, they can get away with this because we don't have, you know, a higher court to stop them or whatever. I assume when Labour get into power, if they were to, to try and take away the voter ID requirement, then the Tories would say, you're actively trying to promote electoral fraud. And I'm sure there would be a lot of dog whistle racism when it comes to ethnic minorities. Because when people talk about electoral fraud, that's often what they're kind of trying to prod the audience to suggest. There's also a bit of a circularity to the Tories' argument for this, because they, they, they essentially say, you ask why is this necessary, given that there is no evidence that anyone is doing voter impersonation. They say, well, what matters is the the impression of integrity. We need people to have faith in the integrity of elections. So therefore, we have to introduce voter ID. Now, I haven't seen any evidence that people had lost faith in the integrity of elections. And if anything, the only thing that's going to help them lose that faith in the integrity of elections is the Tories banging on about the idea that people are committing voter fraud when they're not. So it's very much one of these things where the the Tories think, oh, this is a policy that would benefit us in election. Now let's stoke up an invented moral panic and then we can respond to that moral panic with a policy that happens to benefit us. It's actually also not the only policy the Tories have introduced, you know, gerrymandering um, in in this way. Dahlia mentioned the boundary changes. The other one which I found kind of most depressing and annoying is they have changed the voting rules for regional mayors So it used to be the case, it has been the case up to now, in fact, that in those elections, you get a a first choice and a second preference, a first preference and a second preference. So say, you know, I vote in the London mayoralty, of course, if you really don't want the Tory to win, but you'd kind of prefer the Greens to win over Labour, you can put Greens number one, Labour number two, and you can be confident that you're both expressing your true preferences, but you're also going to keep the Tory out because you put Labour as number two. Now, there were a couple of elections, I think, where it was that voting system that did keep the Tories out because the vote was a bit split between Labour and I think it was the Lib Dems. And so if, if it hadn't been second preferences, the Tories would have won. And so what did the Tories do? They just got rid of it. So now it's only going to be first preference voting in, in mayoralties from now on. Very depressing for the left as well, because first and second preference voting is kind of the only way that you can, I mean, safely get someone to the left of Labour in on a big election because if you don't have second preference voting, say in in London, for example, if at the next election, there's loads and loads of momentum behind the Green candidate, the biggest argument for not voting for them is going to be saying by splitting the the vote, you'll let the Tory candidate in. It could be the strongest argument against any third party candidate. And now it's going to work, right? Because the Tories changed the voting rules purely to benefit themselves because they want some Tory mayors to get in on a minority of votes because they know they can't win a legitimate majority. So all very depressing. Again, um, they seem to have got away with that one. That is one I can imagine Labour reintroducing when they get into power. Well, actually, I'm going to completely reverse that. They could get away with that. They wouldn't be subject to particularly severe attacks, but actually they have no interest in that because they kind of like the two-party duopoly. So I'm not sure why they would 
reintroduce first and second preference voting. Dalia, any final thoughts on this story about voter ID? Yeah, I think that the idea that people don't have faith in the electoral system, there's some truth to that. But the reason that people don't have faith isn't because they think that there's widespread electoral fraud and that national and that IDs are going to solve the problem. People have a lack of faith because they broadly have a lack of faith in the process of democracy itself. And the reason is, is because they feel like the government is not acting in response to their needs and in response to what they what we are demanding whether it's through what we're striking for whether it's through what we're protesting for whether it's through passing of policies that have widespread um popular backing like the the broken faith in the system um is a much broader issue and i think there's a real cynicism there to the government kind of taking an emotion that is very much there which is a sense that our democratic processes are kind of broken and are not fit for purpose and that people are not getting what they need out of the political system and attaching it to a policy that really has nothing to do with that. So again, it, it's addressing a broader feeling of dissent in the population without actually making the concrete changes that it needed to, to fix that, but instead going for these really surface level, sort of headline grabby, irrelevant policy changes that don't actually get to the heart of why people are frustrated with the political system today. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, obviously, the way to to bring about more faith in the integrity of the electoral process is probably to solve some of the problems that people care about. Right? Maybe if wages rose a little bit, maybe if the NHS wasn't collapsing, people would think that, oh, yeah, democracy is serving our interests. I don't think anyone's going to be particularly like, oh, no, I believe in democracy now because people have to take ID to the voting booth. It's not how it works. Um, Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thanks for having me, Michael. And thank you everyone for watching. Come back to the channel tomorrow night at 6pm. We'll be live once again. For now, you've been watching Navara Live. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.